So a 17-year-old Georgia high school football player died of COVID complications after he was sent home twice by the hospital he went to visit. Here's a photo of him. This is a, a photo being passed around where they describe him as a hashtag gentle giant. His name's Tyler Fairley. Um, he's a student athlete at Douglas County High School. He succumbed to the disease on August 1st, just over a week after testing positive for the virus. He did not receive a COVID vaccine. But here's the story. I mean, and, you know, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just kind of going to take you through the main beats of it. Uh, after receiving the test results on July 23rd, he was taken to Wellstar Douglas Hospital in Douglasville, an Atlanta suburb, on two separate occasions by his mother. She, uh, he was discharged after being diagnosed with pneumonia on the first visit and was told to hydrate himself after a follow-up trip uh, to the same hospital. Quote, one of the male nurses told the other male nurse, we can't hurt ourselves trying to help him into this car. We got to go. And they let go of him, and he fell flat on his face in the backseat of my car, according to his mother. I was like, can you all observe him for a while? Because I said, this is not him. He's not talking. He's not responding. And they were like, he's just in pain because of COVID. Nettles and her husband took fairly to the Children's Health Care of Atlanta in Sandy Springs, a city north of Atlanta. Doctors there say that uh, Fairley was suffering from multiple seizures before dying on August 1st. So they refused care to him. Their defense is like, well, he didn't get the vaccine. And it seems from the reports from the mothers, the allegation is essentially like, we'll get into it in a second, but like the family said that they were treating him different because he hadn't been vaccinated. And uh, that they said they didn't want to hurt themselves getting him into the car. So they just dropped him face down in the vaccine. It's just such a heartbreaking story. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, this really highlights uh, the way our medical system works as a whole, the way our healthcare system functions. It functions based on privilege. It functions based on who are we going to believe based on how much money they have and how much money they can bring to the hospital system, the insurance system. You know, we pay health insurance every single month. It goes up every single year. Oftentimes we don't use it whatsoever. And then when it's time to use it, they don't cover everything. And then when it's time for people to get real help, excuses get made. And this happens to black people all over the country. This happens to black women in child labor. This happens. This happens in, in every facet of, uh, of the medical industry that you can think of, because ultimately what matters is the dollar bill. And if people perceive you as someone who can't really help to stimulate the system, then you're just another number that doesn't matter. The money that's limited has to go elsewhere. Yeah. Every other country, every other developed nation has a health care for everybody. Yeah. And you don't have to drive around until you find something in network. You don't get a giant penalty afterwards because you went to a place that was close when you were afraid that your family member was going to die and all those countries pay half as much per person as us half mm -hmm. we die sooner and pay twice as much but our capitalist system is totally nailing it then they'll say we have the best services we have the best technology for who no don't if you can buy it yeah then but if you're just some person if you're a kid who's who again like and then there's the racial element where they call him a gentle giant there is there's actual proven discrimination where they're like he can handle it he's faking uh -huh. it or they just just they they're stronger than other people it's disgusting anyways um poor kid had a, a scholarship for morehouse college to play football anyone thanks to a failure of the medical system in my With my face turned to the sun.
You enjoyed being a young mother. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a great privilege to be able to be a mother. When she wasn't busy with her son, she was busy working. Erin was a cocktail waitress at a restaurant in Ontario, California. At the time, I would spend my weeks with, with my son, and on the weekends, I would be at work pretty much from Thursday night to Sunday afternoon. But one Saturday in April, business was slow. Erin suddenly had an afternoon to herself when she left work early. You get off in the middle of the day, you're excited about having the rest of your evening, you're not thinking bad things are going to happen to you. But something really bad was about to happen. When I got to my car, I had a habit of clicking my unlock button twice because it unlocks all the doors. Just as Erin opened her door, she heard... Get in the car. At first, she thought it was just a co-worker pulling a prank. When did you start realizing that this is serious? When I saw the gun. This was no joke. The stranger had a gun pointed directly at Erin. She knew hollering for help wouldn't do any good. It's very rare for the parking lot to be empty. Unfortunately for me, it, it was empty. And if someone did pass, they likely would not see the gun. He held it very low to his waist, and he had a friend behind him who was kind of blocking from the aisle direction. He had an accomplice. Erin worried if she tried to make a run for it, he'd shoot. Instead, she followed his commands. I got in the car, he got in the passenger seat, and told me to drive. The accomplice stayed behind, and now Erin and her abductor were alone leaving the mall parking lot on a ride to hell. He didn't tell me where to drive, and since I grew up in the area, I knew of a few places where cops tended to hang out. So I figured I would try to steer that direction. I contemplated driving my car off the road or ramming into somebody else or just putting it in park and running. Erin was also begging the strange man to let her go. I pleaded with him just... You know, you can take my car, I'm not worried about it, I won't call the cops, just take my car and, and let me out. When he told her to pull over, Erin drove into a restaurant lot where she'd always seen cops hanging out. Hopefully somebody's there and maybe that'll scare him, the fact that there's a cop right there. Unfortunately for me, there was no cop there. The gunman ordered her to drive around to the back of the building, but she couldn't. There was a storage unit attached to it. He couldn't get back there without a code. He was very upset. He kept going, drive around at the back, and I said, there is no back. Surveillance video obtained exclusively by Crime Watch Daily shows Erin and her abductor pulling into the parking lot. I'm parked facing a window into a storage facility, and there's, a, you know, not a there's a gas station down the street, there's a Denny's behind me, there's a liquor store right there. I thought, there's no way. There's no way anything's going to happen. But Erin was wrong. As soon as she parked, the gunman forced her at gunpoint into the back seat. I started crying. He got in the back seat with me um, and kind of sat where my car seat was. He was sitting on top of your baby's seat. Mm-hmm. Aaron says he then ordered her to take off her clothes. She desperately pleaded with him to let her go. He made it clear that wasn't going to happen. This nightmare was far from over. He ended up putting the gun to my head and told me to stop crying. He actually um, 
racked the gun and a bullet popped out and landed in the seat. I knew the gun was fully loaded. You knew he meant business. Up next, a daring escape. I booked it out running, crying, and screaming. The breathless moment caught on tape. And what the rapist leaves behind leaves cops speechless. What did you think when you saw that? I was shocked. Erin Orcutt was all smiles as she left her waitressing job one Saturday afternoon in April. I happened to get off early. We were incredibly dead. But moments later, the single mom's carefree spirit would be filled with terror. He had a gun pointed at me. He told me to get in the car. Erin was forced to drive while the strange gunman sexually assaulted her. Before long, she parked in what she thought would be a safe spot. There's a lot of foot traffic that goes on in that area. Despite the businesses all around, the dark tinted windows made it impossible for anyone to see what was now happening in the back of her SUV. He um, told me to get undressed and I was crying, shaking uncontrollably. Erin's tears quickly dry up when her abductor sticks the gun in her mouth, aggressively demanding she shut up. What did you do then? He had me sit on top of his lap and he tried, tried to penetrate me, but he, he couldn't do it. But Aaron says that <coughs> didn't matter. The abuse continued. He had me but he was taking pictures the entire time. And I looked up and he smiled and he snapped again. And then he told me to uh, smile pretty and took a picture of me without my clothes on. Not only was he taking pictures, the violent rapist started texting the lewd photos to the accomplice he left back at the mall parking lot. The two men were soon talking on the phone. His friend was like, where are you? He goes, oh, you don't see me. I'm right here. And was playing around. He was laughing on his phone. I couldn't believe it. The laughter didn't last. Aaron says in an instant, rage took over. He'd just stare at me, just dead eyes, and just hit me. He socked me in the face a few times. He had me get on my stomach, and he tried to rape me from behind. He, he really couldn't. After about an hour, the gunman told Aaron to get dressed. Their road trip was about to take an even darker turn. He had mentioned that we were going to go to the desert and finish this. I knew it. if I didn't get out right then and there, I there's no way I would have made it out. Though racked with fear, she discreetly noticed his gun had fallen to the floor and was now under the passenger seat. She thought about the child lock on her back door. I had child locks on the side of the car that he was on, and the side that I was on was behind the driver's side door. There was no child locks. Just then, her attacker's phone rang again, and this time, when he answered, Aaron's survivor instinct kicked into full throttle. It was now or never. I threw the door open, and I ran, like the hounds of hell were, were on my heels. Crime Watch Daily has obtained this exclusive surveillance video showing Aaron's desperate sprint to safety. What you can't hear were her piercing screams for help the entire time. 
He has gun, he has a gun. Everybody get back inside. Aaron had no idea, but the owner of the nearby liquor store had been keeping a suspicious eye on her SUV. He knew there were two people inside. He was about to call police. He grabbed me inside and he threw me behind the register. So I just at that point, I lost it. Detective Robert Marquez with the Ontario Police Department was one of the first on scene. He says if Aaron hadn't run when she did, she wouldn't be telling her story. I don't think he was going to let her go. He had done too many things in front of too many cameras, and uh, his plan was to take her somewhere and, and harm her. You feel that her attacker planned to kill her? Yes. Once Aaron made her dangerous escape, the gunman tried to make his own. He had grabbed my keys and tried to start my car, but I had a kill switch. So he couldn't have started the car unless he knew where the sensor was. When he couldn't drive away, he took off on foot, quickly getting lost in all the traffic. His getaway wouldn't last long. Erica's attacker made one critical mistake. He left his gun inside the car. And that's not all. Taped on the bottom of the magazine was his name. My stomach dropped. Kidnapped at gunpoint while leaving work, Aaron Orcutt was beaten and raped inside her SUV. The horrifying assault went on for more than an hour before she finally broke free and fled for her life. I think he was surprised that she escaped and then he went into a panic-type mode. But in his own rush to get away, the attacker left behind plenty of evidence. We were able to locate his gun her clothing, uh, biological fluids, and his sunglasses. And right there, taped on the bottom of the gun's magazine, was their biggest clue, the suspect's name. But strangely, it was a labeling technique Detective Robert Marquez knew very well. Normally, police officers, they will put their name on the bottom of the magazine in case they have to let somebody else use their magazine in a gunfight. What did you think when you saw that? I was shocked. And his shock was about to turn to outrage. As cops were investigating Aaron's abduction, an officer, Anthony Orban, from the nearby city of Westminster, was reporting his gun missing or stolen in the Ontario area. They kind of put two and two together and they decided, hey, this is related. But related how? Detectives knew either the sick man who kidnapped and raped Aaron had used a cop's gun or the demented attacker was a cop himself. Officer Orban was tracked down to a nearby parking lot where he was helping a friend and fellow officer find his truck. Yes, Jeffrey Jelinek was a correctional officer for the state of California. Orban and Jelinek matched the descriptions Aaron had given of her attacker and his accomplice. They even had her keys. Aaron was soon brought over to ID them both. There was, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 cop cars with floodlights. Just lighting came up. I've never seen anything like that before. But they pulled right up and let me ID them. And as soon as I did, um, they took me back to the, to the hospital. How did that sit with you when you learned that your attacker was a police officer? My initial thought was, oh my gosh, nobody's ever going to seek justice for this because he's one of them. 
I was very fortunate to be wrong. Officers Orban and Jelnik were immediately taken into custody. Suddenly, both claimed they couldn't remember a thing. Why is it again in this girl's car? I don't know. Do you remember pulling down your pants? No. Why were you guys over by Dave and Buster? I don't know. Do you remember following the girl to the car? I don't. In this exclusive video obtained by Crime Watch Daily, Officer Orban claims he drank too many margaritas at lunch, causing him to black out. I haven't drank in a very, very, very long time. But what he did admit to detectives corroborated what Aaron tearfully revealed. I've been on those depressed, uh, antidepressants and it just kills your sex drive. Does it cause you to have a hard time? Um... I usually can't even... So you have trouble getting... Yes. After a short time behind bars, Officer Jelnek apparently regained some of his memory. He told us at the very end of his interrogation, you might want to look at the photos. And I said, what photos? And he said, the photos on my phone. I went, what? On his phone, all the pictures Anthony Orban snapped forcing Aaron to perform sex acts on him. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I just thought this poor girl. He sent those photos to Jelinek. Why? I think they were playing some type of sick game and tried to outdo each other. Even though his friend came, Anthony was sticking to his script. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff, a little bit more. He's not losing his whole career for you. What? I... I don't remember anything. He didn't remember anything either, but all of a sudden now, after sitting in the I don't remember anything. Detectives say even when they weren't in the room, Officer Orban kept up the charade. This has got to be a bad dream. What is going on? What the Because he knows the camera's there, he's an investigator himself, he's a police officer. He was assigned to sex investigations. Wait, he's a sex crimes officer? Yes. What type of irony is this? How, are you in disbelief? Absolutely. And in yet another shocking twist, the same antidepressant that Officer Orban blamed for his impotence problem, he also blamed for the assault on Aaron. He claimed that he had taken Zoloft while he was drinking alcohol. So he said the Zoloft made him do it? That's correct. Officer Orban pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, claiming the Zoloft left him unconscious during the attack. I was pissed. So pissed. So many people are on Zoloft and they're not going to go off and rape somebody and kidnap them at gunpoint. It was an excuse. It was excuse after excuse after excuse. And it was all about him being the victim. But there was an actual victim, Aaron Orcutt. Though the terror from a rape at gunpoint was over and her attacker behind bars, she was now facing a second frightening ordeal. He was making phone calls that were being recorded from the jail, um, making statements like it would be a lot easier if the witness wasn't around. And I was getting weird phone calls, and I did get followed on the freeway, and we didn't know if it was related or not, but I was terrified. The district attorney's office was so worried about possible retaliation, Aaron had to remain in seclusion during the trial. They did everything in their power aside from witness protection just to make sure that I was safe. 
She was only allowed to attend Orban's trial the day she testified and the day the verdicts were handed down. When they found him guilty on all counts and sane, I broke. I just, I broke down because at that point I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there's an end to this now. Jurors rejected his insanity defense, finding Anthony Orban guilty of kidnapping, rape, and multiple counts of sexual assault. Eight felony counts in all. His accomplice, Jeff Jelinek, had testified against him in court, agreeing to plead no contest in exchange for a lighter sentence. Jelinek was eventually sentenced to five years after he was released. He went back to live with his mom and dad back east. Two and a half years after she was kidnapped and raped, Erin was going to confront her attacker in court. On sentencing day, a brave Erin was more than ready. I got a phone call, and they told me, you may not have to even come down today. They found him dead in his cell. Anthony Orban committed suicide by hanging himself. I needed that closure, and I was just in tears. I had been right there willing to forgive him. And once that happened, I was finding it very hard to cling to that forgiveness. In a highly unusual and unprecedented move, the judge still allowed Erin to read her victim impact statement, while Anthony's family respectfully remained in court and listened. No amount of reasoning can justify the horrors that I was forced to endure that day, and those who tried should be ashamed of themselves. I am disappointed that a person in your position would have behaved in such a way and that you tried to get away with it instead of owning up to your actions like a real man. But then a real man would never have kidnapped, raped, beaten, and terrorized a woman. I choose to live my life and take back any power that your actions may have had over me. To do so, I have to do something that I have struggled with and never thought I would be able to do. I forgive you. So in your heart, you found room to forgive him. You can't move on without doing so. Erin has moved on, but it hasn't been easy. Diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, Erin has suffered from panic attacks and depression. And yet, this strong survivor refuses to break. It was either, okay, get back up and figure your life out, or you're going to cling to it as a crutch and be that person that's just a victim forever, and I wasn't about to be a victim. If he had not taken his own life, Anthony Orban would have spent the rest of it behind bars. The judge in the case revealed she was planning to sentence him to 82 years to life in prison, followed by a 95-year sentence.